Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chris Babbitts. Today's guest is Alex Safe Cummings, author of Brain Magnet, Research Triangle Park, and the Idea of the Idea Economy, published by Columbia University Press. In Brain Magnet, Dr. Cummings reveals the significance of North Carolina's Research Triangle Park to the emergence of the high-tech economy in the post-industrial United States. This is a story of how the Old South gave way to a distinctly new one, which wielded the intellectual power of universities to a vision of the suburban good life. Thank you so much for being with us, Alex. Hi, well, it's th- uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. To get us started, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, I grew up uh, in West Virginia, Indiana, and North Carolina, Um, I can say out of the trio there, North Carolina was the slam dunk. Um, West Virginia and Indiana were fucking horrible. Um, And I just, you know, I grew up in Gastonia, North Carolina, which is kind of like a, you know, sort of aging textile town. And, you know, I kind of saw what was happening in Raleigh, Durham and Chapel Hill as uh, a really fascinating thing because it's like, oh, here's where there's tech industries. Here's where there's um, hospitals, medical schools, biotech. Like, um, this is where like prosperity is. This is where um, the future is. And I, I, I was very intrigued by that concept because of where I was really coming from. And I was always curious, like, how did this happen? Why? Why is it like that? Um, is it good? Um, what, what policies or ideas led to it? And so for my second book, I was really interested in exploring that. So you already started describing uh, one of the triangles you talk about, which is the Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill triangle. But you talk about and write about Research Triangle Park. What is that? Okay, yes. Research Triangle Park um, is a place where North Carolina is. No, I'm kidding. Um, there's a little bit, there's like a, a, there's an apocryphal tale in the book and, and many other books about how like a Japanese businessman came to, um, you know, this subject came up and he said, Oh, um, North Carolina, is that in the research triangle? Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of become part of the lore of the state that like the research triangle park is better known than the state itself. Um, but yes, it was an economic development project that was started in about 1955. There was a, a contractor um, from um, Greensboro, North Carolina, which is not that far away, who he had gone to MIT for college and he came back and you know became part of the family business. They're building plants and like uh, structures for industries that are moving to the South, to the Sun Belt, to North Carolina. And he had said like at Harvard, MIT, like he saw that there was a scientific 
technological like uh, enterprise ari- uh, uh, arising around that. And he said, like, we should do that here. We should do like a Charles River of the South, as he put it. Um, and so he said, well, we've got UNC Chapel Hill. We've got Duke University in Durham. We've got NC State in Raleigh. Like, why don't we try to, we'll just call it the research rank. Like he came up with that idea. And so it was an idea at first. It was just like, oh, well, we've got universities. Let's try to get like high tech. I mean, that, even, even that term high tech didn't really exist at the time, but like more advanced technological industries that pay higher wages that do more innovation, like get them to come here. And so they, they floated this idea. There was a governor at the time named Luther Hodges, who was very keen on this idea. He, he embraced it. And so they started promoting it. And then they realized like, we need to have an actual like physical thing as the centerpiece of this. So they created research triangle park, which is this extremely highly controlled, um, very specifically zoned like space where there will be like research laboratories for IBM, uh, Sumitomo, these other companies. And it will be very suburban. It will be very pastoral. It will be very clean and neat. And we'll, we'll create this little space where these companies can come and invest. And that will be like the crown jewel in our whole strategy. And then after that, then people will keep coming here. Uh, people who are scientists or engineers who have advanced education, uh, investors, uh, companies, big companies like uh, Glaxo or whatever will want to come here because we're marketing this uh, as a place that you should that you should invest and also your employees will want to live. You've already mentioned Boston with Harvard and MIT. The kind of Route uh, 128 in Massachusetts is known for its high-tech industry. Um, but you also compare um, Research Triangle Park in the book to Silicon Valley and that's development. How did Research Triangle Park's development differ from those maybe more well-known centers of the ideas economy? Oh, that's such a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Um, I think the thing that's notable about the Research Triangle is that it is so consciously, deliberately, awareedly, like, created. Um, You could say to some extent that, like, Silicon Valley or Route 128 um, kind of happened a little bit organically or accidentally. Like, you know, it just kind of was a spillover of the innovation that was coming from Stanford or MIT or Harvard, um, it wasn't a plan. Whereas in Research Triangle Park, it was a very specific plan. Like, we're going to bring smart people here. They have a lot of education. They have skills that are in high demand during the Cold War. Um, computer scientists, um, you know, chemical engineers, and so on. We're going to bring them here. We're going to say, this is the Sunbelt life. It's great. It's fucking awesome. You can live very cheap. And you can work in this place where there are these universities nearby where, you know, there's like culture, there's other smart people here. That was, that was very explicitly part of their pitch. It's like, we're not the slack jawed and bred redneck um, racist South. Like that's what you think we are, but actually these are professors. These are like fancy smart people. And um, you'll, you, if you are moving from New Jersey or Connecticut to uh, Raleigh, in 1965 or 1970, 
like you'll have a decent life here. Like you, you can hang out with other people who go to the poetry club or the little theater or whatever. Um, that it was just so intentionally designed as compared to like Stanford industrial park, which became Stanford research park or, or route One Twenty Eight, um, because these people had an idea in mind and they executed it. You started touching on a lot of things that I found were really interesting in Brain Magnet. Uh, one is these boosters and how they are trying to present this image of what becomes Research Triangle Park as, say, the good life, as a place where people will be cultured and won't be bored, a place that they'll be able to raise their children. Um, and you also talk about how this is really combating an old image of the North Carolina Kim, uh uh, economy as focused on tobacco and furniture building, I believe. So who are these boosters and, and, and how do they go about trying to get the park to become actualized? Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's a mix, right? Like, so the person who first came up with this is Romeo Guest, who uh, was the Greensboro contractor who created the term research triangle and pitched it to the governor. But then the other people were like bankers like George Watts Hill and Durham. Um, obviously the governor, uh, Luther Hodges, um, other industrialists who were like textile magnates, like Carl Robbins, um, who was very influent, like very key in like investing some money in this in the beginning. Um, but also academics, like they had to get the university presidents on board. They had to get faculty on board. Faculty were kind of skeptical of this. Like, what are we being, uh, what are we being sort of sold into here? Like, um, we're not sure if this is good. Um, you had people like George Simpson, who was a sociologist at UNC Chapel Hill, who was a very key person in the early development of the triangle, who was put in charge of overseeing this. And so it's kind of a coalition of academics, uh, bankers, industrialists, and political people. And it's a very unique example of like interclass solidarity. <laughs> like these are like well affluent to very wealthy people, white white men who just decided we're all going to work together on this. Um, as opposed to being interested in their own specific town or county or city or whatever, or region, like sort of setting those things aside and saying, we're going to create this thing and we're going to work together and we're going to be single-mindedly focused on the research triangle as our thing. And I think that that's one of the takeaways from the book is that like, you don't really see that kind of um, cooperation uh, in a lot of local economic development contexts, but it definitely happened there. It was also very fascinating to read about uh, a southern uh, kind of urban center that wants to create like the best and the brightest. That's not anti-intellectual. That really gets you know and pushes back against this idea of maybe the South as an anti-intellectual place. I, I thought that was absolutely just fascinating to read about. You know, that's so. I, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um... It's weird. I mean, like North Carolina, I just, I love North Carolina so much. I, I didn't, I wasn't born there, but I grew up like a, a significant part of my life there. And it's just a very distinctive place in the context of the South. Um, when I went to grad school in New York, um, I had a class with Barbara Fields, who's one of my heroes. She's a fucking 
just giant of everything. And she's amazing. Um, but like at the beginning of one of the classes, she, she um, made this joke about like, well, she's from South Carolina and then she went to college in DC. Um, and she said, well, when I was growing up, we just um, felt like, you know, between Virginia and South Carolina and North Carolina, it was just a thing that you had to drive through. And I said, well, in North Carolina, we like to think that we're a veil of humility between two mountains of conceit. <laughs> and this is probably the only time in Barbara Field's life she didn't like respond. <laughs> She's like, well, okay, I guess you're right. Um, I mean, I love her. I have to emphasize that. She's my fucking hero. But um, so like it, North Carolina o- occupies a very weird place in the upper South because it really did have this image as being more moderate than like Alabama or South Carolina or really Virginia. I mean, Virginia, they were doing maximum like um, opposition to desegregation. Like we're, we're going to, we're going to fucking close the schools as opposed to do integration. North Carolina was trying to position itself as being like, you know, man, like we're cool, man. Like we're not like, we're not like that. Um, and so they, they did really cherish this idea that well, like, we're about education. We're about science. Um, we are not like the other Southern States. And, and actually they were like, and, and most, by most metrics, they were really like the other Southern States, infant mortality, unionization, economic inequality, poverty. They really were like all of the other Southern States, but they wanted to present this um, image that they were more progressive. And that really took a real form and a lot of policy. I mean, they really, in North Carolina, they really did a lot of things with education in the state that uh, were innovative and progressive because they believed in that idea. They wouldn't believe in economic or racial equality per se, but they definitely believed in the idea of education as a means of progress. Yeah, that element that uh, not being as racist as part of the other parts of the South, uh, being part of the good life, high levels of education is going to be this tech center even. You know, all of these things converged and almost a marketing strategy, right? Totally. So let's talk about, uh, it did take a little bit to maybe get some big, big companies to move to research Triangle Park, but who were some of the first ones and how did these companies change maybe the Triangle's national or even international reputation? Oh, right. So like when George Simpson, I mentioned him, he was um, the sociologist from UNC Chapel Hill who was leading the Research Triangle Committee in the beginning. Um you know, he and his other fellow academics, they went all over the country. They went to New York, New Jersey, Michigan, Texas to talk to people about like, hey, Texas Instruments or Pfizer, like, do you want to move here? And they got some real cold shoulders and they got some real talk. Like um, one of this guy went to Pfizer and and Brooklyn, I think at the time where they were located. And one of the chemists that worked there, one of the top guys said, look, dude, like, I'm going to be real with you. Um, You've got some nice universities down there. That's cool. I mean, they're not like that great, but they're okay. Um, But like, they, they don't rise to the top of my mind. And like, this is not a reason for 
us to move there. Uh, UNC Chapel Hill, that's cute, do whatever. Um, we usually have the lab with the factory, like so we locate the lab near the industrial site. Um, so they really they felt they 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 faced a lot of uh, skepticism and, and understandably, like why should why should high tech companies come to this little like corner in the piney woods of central North Carolina? Uh, what they did do, though, they did, got a few early clients. They got Chemstrand from Alabama. Um, they got some other smaller clients in the early 60s. But they got IBM to come in 1965. And that was a big project of um, the governor at the time, or who had been the governor, Terry Sanford. Um, and they got... The what would eventually become the Environmental Protection Agency. It didn't exist at the time, but like they got a big environmental health research uh, facility located there in 64, 65. And so those were like the, the two signal events that like they, they signaled to everyone else that like, oh, this is a place you can come. IBM came there. This big federal environmental health research facility came there. Um, and then after that, you get things like uh, Burroughs Welcome, which I write about a lot in the book, the pharmaceutical company. They built this very iconic building that is still, you know, extremely significant today. I've written about that a lot. Um, and that kind of opened the gates for other companies to come there in the 70s and 80s. There was a little bit of a challenge, though, with kind of maybe convincing some of these larger companies to to move there. It almost seemed like the 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 idea of Research Triangle Park was to uh, divorce ideas from manufacturing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's actually the thing that I was most interested in 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 doing this project and writing this book is that like it was the idea that like we can have an economy of the future where there's no manufacturing, where there's no working class people, like we're going to just have an, an economy of engineers and scientists and chemists and programmers. Like we're going to have this purely idea based economy uh, that's creating intellectual property. And that is really what RTP was selling. And I think it's very significant in terms of the way we've thought about the economy in the U S in the last 30 years or so is that like, Oh, who gives a shit about these fucking auto workers? Like, um, but, it's this is dumb. Like we can send that to Bangladesh or something. I don't know, whatever. But like the people who make like ang- angry birds are like very important and we should definitely <laughs> focus on them. <laughs> so like, uh, that, that was definitely part of the inspiration for the book. Yeah. It's, it's, you'd think that once again, the creation of an economy based around ideas, the way in which we talk about that is that that's, a much later creation, and here we have these visionaries almost in in North Carolina thinking about it. I think that's I think that's so interesting. Like these, were, I I'm always sympathetic to people who are in like difficult situations and don't really understand what they're dealing with, which is basically my entire life. Um, but like these were just some guys who owned a bank in Winston Salem in 1955, or. Uh, they were a sociology professor, so they were probably more informed. Or they were just a go- they were a governor of North Carolina who grew up working in a textile factory when he was eleven. Like 
these were not people who had like a comprehensively worked out like vision of society or economic or political philosophy. They just created this thing because they kind of had the idea that maybe this was the way to go. Um, and, and and it really resonates. I mean, it, it is very um, consonant with like the overarching political economic changes that happened in the U S going from the fifties forward. Like people think of the post-industrial or deindustrializing turn happening in the seventies or eighties, but like people in the fifties or sixties were actually aware, like people like Daniel Bell, um, the sociologist who wrote the coming of post-industrial society, very influentially in other books. um, They were aware that like the proportion of the workforce that's in manufacturing is actually diminishing. So that's what we call deindustrialization. But um, they were aware, even the port, the people who did the Port Huron uh, statement from SDS in 1962, they all like saw that there was a different kind of economy, political economy and society coming. And um, so they were thinking about it in the fifties and sixties. And these like guys who were in sort of, you know, you know, Podunk, North Carolina were kind of thinking about it too, but they didn't, they didn't have a highly sophisticated, complicated intellectual philosophy of it, but they, they kind of were fumbling toward that. There is one place or one early uh, institution that kind of encapsulates the original vision of Research Triangle Park as this place of ideas, and that's the National Humanities Center, which is still located in the park. So how did it end up being located there? And how did the National Humanities Center help satisfy the Triangle's mission? I write about the National Humanities Center in the book because it's like not that significant. It's a relatively small institution that like employs relatively few people. Like compared to all the other employers in RTP, it's like not that important. But it's very important in terms of the symbolism of RTP. Like they created this, like you create a business park anywhere, industrial park and say, Oh, well put a factory here, put an office park there. It'll be like the, the office from Scranton PA or whatever. Um, but like they wanted this to be something different. They wanted this to be something like more unique and special, so to speak. And so they wanted to bring the humanities into it. And so in the mid seventies, there was this idea of creating a national humanities center, um, it might have been placed in in New York City and Manhattan, or it might have been based in New Jersey or Chapel Hill. Like there were there were different people who are bidding for this project. Like there were people who are investing and saying, like, we're gonna create this National Humanities Center. And and RTP ended up winning out, um, in part because of this sort of anti-urban bias of the time that like um, New York City is too busy and dirty and chaotic and full of crime for like you know philosophers and literary scholars to like sit around and have smart ideas like you know putting their finger on their uh, chin and staring pensively out the window. Um, like they made the argument that like come to the woods, come to the forest, come to Research Triangle Park. We can have all these intellectuals, these professors, they can come there. Um, I should explain, actually, the National Humanities Center is a thing that brings um, scholars uh, who might be in philosophy or literature or history 
to this place and they spend a year there um, just working on their projects and not teaching. So it's, it's a very, it's like, it's like the, uh, it's like the crystallization of um, the idea that we would have a purely intellectual economy. Like we're this, like the national humanities center, even the arc I talk about in the book, like the architectural structure of it is even based on this idea of like lucidity and, and thought and imagination. Like it's, it's very pure. It's very white. It's very like, um, like, uh, austere in a way that like, this is a place where smart people come and they think ideas. Um, and so like, even though it's like not that important economically in the context of research triangle park, it is very significant symbolically. And, um, they got it to come there because they, made some deals and said, we'll give you free land and stuff. And, and they were also like not wanting to locate this institution in like a big city. One of the most uh, interesting uh, historic actors that you address in this because of a trajectory that they take is Bill Bell. I wonder if you could tell the listeners a little bit about Bell's life and what that tells us about race, racism and racial ideology in the triangle. Oh man, this whole thing with Bill Bell. I mean, I, I, I have such admiration for this person. Um, you know, he, uh, he was the mayor of Durham for a significant part of the, you know, early two thousands. Um, he was mayor at the time when Durham was having its quote unquote Renaissance, um, that it became like a cool place to be. Um, when I was growing up in the nineties, like, you know, you went to the downtowns of major cities like Greensboro or Durham or Raleigh, and there was like nobody there. It was the quintessence of white flight and just disinvestment. But like Bill Bell came along at a time when um, the move was in the opposite direction, but he came from such an interesting like background and story and trajectory. Like, this is a guy who came to Durham in 1968 and he had been educated at Howard university and other institutions. Um, he was, you know, a, a, a tech worker um, and he was black and he came to Durham. He, he really liked the idea of Durham. He's like, yeah, this is a place where like, there's like an intellectually vibrant community and like, I want to live there. And it's also, like Durham was known as the black wall street at one point, uh, because there was like pretty significant, um, insurance companies and other black owned businesses there. Um, so it seemed like a place of opportunity and he moved there and he wanted to move into this neighborhood called Parkwood, which was, I write about a lot in the third chapter of the book, um, which was a neighborhood designed to house people who work in research triangle park. And, um, Bell and his family, they come along and they're like, we want to buy a house in this community, which had been a completely white community up to that point. And uh, this is a fascinating like saga that unfolds in that community uh, about this, where, you know, the more liberal leaning people in the community are like, Hey, like let's let this black family live into our neighborhood. And there are other people who are diehard segregationists who are saying like, this is bullshit. I hate this. Don't let them move in here. Um, 
And so they have a real debate within the community. So this is like, I, I can't stress enough, this is a suburb that was specifically created to house people who worked in Research Triangle Park, which was literally like a stone's throw away. And, you know, Bill Bell looks at this, there's this debate going on in the community, and he looks at this and says, like, fuck this. I'll just move to like a middle class black community. Like, um, if you guys have to like really have like a serious debate about whether I, my, my wife and daughter, you know, my family deserve to live here, um, then I'm not going to do it. The ironic thing is the Parkwood people actually did kind of decide that the Bell family should be able to move in, but the Bell family just said like, fuck this, which I think was probably pretty wise in a lot of ways. Um, and so, like, this is, it seems like kind of, uh, maybe, maybe it seems like a little bit of melodrama, but, like, other black families who were moving into white suburbs at this time in North Carolina or New Jersey or Illinois, like, they were terrorized. They were, like, threatened and beaten. Like, so Bill Bell, when he was making this decision, he's like, I don't know if I want to leave my wife and my kids alone in this neighborhood while I'm at work because I don't know what will happen. Um, there was actually a, 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 a case happening in Raleigh about the same time about a white man who like beat up um, a, 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 a black person who had moved into his neighborhood. And um, so this was, and, and, and the, and I write also about like Howard Lee, who was the mayor of Chapel. He, he became the mayor of Chapel Hill, but he was a, he was a black employee of um, Duke University, and he ran for uh, mayor of Chapel Hill. And when they moved into their neighborhood, there were death threats and things like that. So, like, it's a very real thing. The interesting thing about, like, Parkwood and Bill Bell and all that is that, like, these were white people who were fairly affluent, who were kind of on the cusp of making the right decision, but they still kind of didn't land it. <laughs> um so they were they were really thinking about like blockbusting and white flight. They were really thinking about it, but they just didn't quite nail it. I think that's a wonderful transition to to the last question I have for you. And this is almost parroting back word for word something that you write, I believe, in the introduction. And the question is, do you think that a city of ideas is a city of hope, or is it indeed destined to be the province of a privileged few? What one might call a new cognitive elite? That is the big question. Um, I was working on this book when like, I've I've been working on this book for a long time, but like I I was working on it when Donald Trump was elected and it kind of threw the whole like concept of the book into disarray. Cause it's like the book I was writing as was about the emergence of this like neoliberal, a cognitive elite, like professional managerial class that, you know, reads the New York times op-ed page and says, yeah, that's good. Um, and just, you know, is, is very satisfied with its own privilege while the rest of society, like, you know, unwinds in inequality and despair. That was the original idea of the book. And then Trump comes along and it's like, I don't know, man, like, should I be changing this? Like, um, like uh, there's this anti-intellectual, anti-education, anti-science, like uh, racist nationalist movement that has taken over our culture, and 
like maybe I maybe we should be closing the wagons around like our institutions of education and science. Maybe I shouldn't be doing like a, a sort of bitchy like economic or critique of of those institutions. Maybe we should be um, expressing solidarity and trying to preserve them. But eventually, I did realize that like the basic analysis from my point of view was still sound, which is that like this is an increasingly unequal society. Uh, there are some people who have a lots of education and privilege and they are peeling away from the rest of American society. And I think this pandemic situation has made it extremely clear. Uh, people who can work from home, who are doing, I don't know, employee engagement for the yellow pages or whatever. Um, they can work from home. They're fine. They make a uh, hundred thousand dollars a year and they're good. Um, while the rest of the society literally fucking dies. Um, so I, I feel like I came around to realizing that like the, um, the original idea was not so wrong because that really is kind of the trajectory of our political economy in spite of Trump, in spite of, you know, whatever, like, you know, this political fiasco we're in. The, the trend of the society is in this direction of inequality and a privileged elite. So that brings us back to the question of, can it be a city of hope? Um, I just, I, I'm so, I'm, I struggle with this so much. There's this book by uh, the historian Patricia Sullivan called Days of Hope um, about like the South during the New Deal era and about like people who are fighting for racial equality and economic equality um, during the New Deal depression era. And I, 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 I specifically wrote that like in, in allusion to Pat, Patricia Sullivan's idea of days of hope. Like, can it be a city of hope? Like to me growing up as like in a very poor family in a very disadvantaged situation um, in Gastonia, like to me, Durham or Raleigh, they were the city of hope. Like this is, this is what we can do. We can create new technologies. We can, create great literature. Like this is, we can create great music. Like this is the place where you go to like make those things happen. And that's beautiful. It's fucking beautiful. But like at the same time, you have to recognize the fact that it's based on the immiseration of like lots of people. And so we've never reckoned with that. And I actually think right now we might actually be beginning to reckon with that that like the happiness of the upper middle class is um, conditioned on um, the, you know, trials and difficulties of the working class. And, but, but at the same time, there's still this, there's still this like outlying vision of like, this could be a creative, beautiful, innovative like place. Like this could be good. This could be really good. And I think I, I don't want to lose sight of that. Alex, it has been great getting to chat to you about Brain Magnet. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I appreciate it so much. I mean, like, this has been like great therapy for me. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for everyone else, head to the Columbia University Press website to purchase a copy of Alex's Brain Magnet. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today at New Books in History. I'm Chris Babbitts, wishing you the best as you engage with cutting-edge works of history.